in medicine in general, we're really good at like stuffing a bunch of information into people's heads, you know, you know, please, you know, memorize all this stuff so you can regurgitate it on a multiple choice examination, um, et cetera. And so we're, we're really good at, you know, putting information in people's heads, but we're not always the best at, um, teaching students or teaching learners, or, I mean, you and I are both lifelong learners here too. So teaching medical uh, clinicians um, to take all that information that we've stuffed into their brains and then access that in a very efficient manner. And so this is where this idea of retrieval practice comes in, where you teach somebody something and then you assess them um, or you have them practice it. And this can be done at like a low stakes, like talking through a case or talking through like the way that you would, you know, approach a difficult situation. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest again this episode is Janelle Bluedorn. Janelle is an emergency medicine physician assistant and a medical educator with a career that spans over a decade in emergency medicine. She's currently faculty at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, but will be transitioning to a faculty role at Duke University School of Medicine in the fall of 2021. Janelle has held a variety of leadership roles in the PA world, most recently serving as the vice president of the Society of Emergency Medicine PAs. Her professional interests include mentorship of women in medicine, healthcare communication, point-of-care ultrasound, and intentional inclusivity in medical education. When she's not teaching or working in the emergency department by her own description, she's likely stress-baking, doing yoga, or navigating being a toddler mom during a pandemic. You can find her on social media, both Instagram and Twitter, at at Janelle R. Blue. That's J-A-N-E-L-L-E-R-B-L-U, all one word. Okay, so last time with Janelle, we talked a lot about the internal environment and the work each of us needs to do to perform under pressure. This time, we're going to shift gears slightly and talk more about what it means to be part of a team that's performing under pressure, what it means to lead that type of a team, especially in the setting of interprofessional or interdisciplinary teams. We're also going to dig into issues around leadership and modeling excellent behavior, and we're going to talk a bit about retrieval practice and how to perform it in low and high stress scenarios. Before we dive in, two important ways that you can interact more with us here at The Emergency Mind. First, you can pick up a copy of the book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. It's available on Amazon. Uh, And if you already have a copy, please consider leaving a review. That really helps us out. The other way is that you can sign up for our newsletter, which is called Knowledge Under Pressure, and it gives you a deep dive into a lot of the concepts we're discussing on this podcast. You can find that at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Janelle, welcome welcome back for round two of this podcast. Um, Totally happy to have you uh, and honored that you'd, you'd come back for this second part. I am very honored to be here uh, for part two. It's always really good to see you and hear you after all of these years. Phenomenal. So in in the first section of this podcast, um, in our conversation, we focused a lot on sort of an individual case and your mindset as uh, an expert in emergency care and performance under pressure and how you went through these moments and specifically around this idea of sort of embracing the power of the limits of our knowledge and, and our response to that. Um, what I'm hoping we can do in this second piece is talk more uh, from a systems point of view and get out of our own heads a little bit and talk about what it is to build a system and a team 
that enables both individuals to succeed and then also enables the whole system to succeed in these moments of intense pressure and uncertainty. Um, and you talked uh, on and off about your role as an educator, and maybe that's a good place to start. So, so what is it like teaching uh, PA students, but also I, I know you've taught a wide variety of other practitioners, including residents. You taught me a ton of stuff as we were starting. Um, and what is that teaching philosophy like? And, and how do you start teaching people to perform under pressure? Absolutely. Um, I think that before you can teach people how to um, work under pressure, you just have to learn how to teach people um, first. And I think that especially teaching PA students, and you've kind of already mentioned this um, a little bit too, in the fact that I've you know taught people of, of different backgrounds too, but I think that especially teaching PA students or any interprofessional team, you have to um, kind of give a nod to the fact that no two students are coming to you with the same backgrounds. And I think that it's really important um, to, you know, give credit to the non-homogenous um, backgrounds of the people that are sitting there in, in front of you and, and wanting to, to learn from you or learn with you. And so having, you know, respect and trust in the, the knowledge and the experiences that people have come in um, with uh, to, to you. Um, so I think that that's really, that's a huge part of my uh, teaching philosophy is um, understanding that people come in with very valuable backgrounds and everybody's perspective, um, even though they may not have as much like formal knowledge, everybody's perspective is very important. And this really kind of goes to this idea of being very inclusive um, in your education and, you know, ensuring that everybody that is there, that is there to learn um, can do it in a place of, you know, psychological uh, safety where they're, you know, able to ask questions, where they're able to feel um, vulnerable, um, where they're able to be comfortable making mistakes. Because I think that, you know, especially when you get to the point where you're teaching people how to perform under pressure, if they don't feel comfortable to make mistakes, if they don't feel comfortable to ask questions, um, if they don't feel that their experiences and their knowledge is, is valued, um, you're not going to get, get anywhere with teaching them anything, whether it's like the most, you know, basic thing on how to do like a cardiac exam or how to, you know, be a member that's helping run a, a trauma. Um, and, and so I think you really need to have this idea of, you know, building, um, intentional inclusivity into your learning environment, whether that is a classroom environment or, or a clinical environment. So that's really, you know, I, I think that that's very central to the way that I approach teaching as a medical educator. And, and what does that look like in the emergency department in particular? Um, because I, I think that that you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the value and the strength of um, processing uncertainty. And, and part of that sits with this idea of being able to feel this wave of sort of chaos and uncertainty roll through you and move on. And, and I think that you're very right that that requires a, um, uh, you know, like a, a deep anchor in yourself and a deep flexibility in yourself to be able to feel that and not get swept by it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really interested in the idea of how we build environments that allow that to happen for people. Now, obviously I can't make anybody feel that, right? Neither can you, neither can any of us, but we can create environments where it's more likely to happen. So in the ER, what does that, that look like? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that a lot of this goes back to role modeling um, and then also uh, um, challenge setting too. Um, I, I do love how you end your podcast with a challenge because I'm somebody that if I challenge myself to do something, I'm much more apt to do it than if I call it setting a goal for myself. It's so weird. It's a, it's definitely a psychological thing. Um, I'm a competitive person. I played a lot of sports. Like I, you know, if you, if I challenge myself to do something, um, I'll do it. Don't necessarily won't always get it done if, if I set it as a goal. But when I have a learner that's working with me, like a, a PA student, or we had a medical student, um, in, in the emergency department with me the other day, um, you know, I sit down and I say, what do you want to, what is your challenge for yourself here today? And, you know, and I, I say like, it can be something that has to do with communication. It can be something that has to do with a procedure that you want to do. It can, you know, be like, I want to see all the abdominal pain patients or something like that. Um, but I do try to, to challenge my students, um, to challenge themselves in something that isn't just straight up medical knowledge. And so, you know, having a difficult conversation with a, with a patient um, under the guidance of, of their preceptor, um, you know, breaking bad news to somebody using kind of like a structured uh, format and, and really kind of like providing these almost like semi-structured opportunities for students to or learners uh, to have themselves be in a situation where they may be faced with having kind of that split second of um, kind of panic uh, when they don't necessarily know what the next thing to do is, but letting them do that in a space where they have some some backup and you as the preceptor, you as you know you uh, and as the, the the physician or me as the PA um, that has a learner with us, you know has us as as backup um, that they feel safe to you know you know, kind of go in there and, and feel uncomfortable in a very controlled environment. I also think that role modeling is super important with this too. And so when you're working on shift and you have a learner with you and you, you know, have a difficult case, letting them know that, you know, what you felt, um, kind of the way that your thought processes, the fact that maybe you felt uncomfortable, or there was a point where you didn't know the answer, um, and, and normalizing those things. Because I think a lot of times, especially um, in medical education, our learners kind of place us on these pedestals. Um, they, they think that, you know, we do no wrong until, you know, we, you know, miss key, um, you know, a question in a multiple choice exam or something like that. But, you know, they, they kind of put us on these pedestals where we, where we do no wrong and where we don't make mistakes and we, we don't feel unsure of ourselves. And, and the exact opposite is true. Like we make mistakes. We feel, you know, unsure of our, ourselves and our decisions sometimes. And I think that kind of cracking that exterior and letting our learners know that we are human um, is extraordinarily important. And that's something that you can certainly do when you're on shift. Um, so I, I think to answer your question here, you know, have some sort of like structured way for, for students to challenge themselves, not just kind of like the technical skills and medical knowledge. Um, and then also do role modeling of this kind of vulnerable vulnerability uh, when you're on shift too. And how conscious are you about that? role modeling, how, um, I guess conscious is maybe the wrong word, but how, um, explicit are you about that role modeling, right? Are, are you seeking to say to yourself, Hey, this is what I was just feeling like for all the cases, or are you doing it for the cases where there's something of particular note, uh, 
or, or are you saying something like, you know, hey, I want to call your attention to something that might not be obvious about what just happened. You might have seen how I did this. This is why I was doing that. Or why do you think I was doing that? Or how could you have done this better? Like, how are you, how are you doing that? Absolutely. Um, I think that I think this is a time that I maybe could be a, a bit more intentional, but a lot of times I kind of play off the, you know, the, the body language or the feedback that I get, uh, the nonverbal feedback that I get from a student in a case, you know, if I, it looks like they might be uncomfortable or uncertain or something like that. Um, or, you know, I look at them and they're standing in the corner of the room with like a deer in headlights look. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is a thing that we do in the ER, like we'll talk about it later. You know, I really kind of play off and individualize the teaching points to what that student is experiencing and, and kind of like where their, their knowledge needs to be met. And so I really, you know, kind of try to pay attention to um, that, that nonverbal language that my learners are, are exhibiting when, when they're working with me on shift. And if I notice that, I'll come back to it later and say, you know, just ask kind of the loaded question. So how'd you feel about that? Um, I, I feel like I, I ask that question a lot um, when I'm working on shift with students is I, I ask, well, how'd you feel about that case? And usually students, um, well, the PA students that I have, like they've known me from their, their preclinical year. And so they're usually pretty open and they will just like, you know, be like a therapy session and, and just tell me how they, they felt about it. And then I'll say, well, I actually felt the same way. And I'll, I'll share the way that I felt. And, and the first couple of times that I share that with them, um, you know, for, for a student, they actually kind of look at me surprised, like, oh, I thought that it, I was just feeling this way because I'm a novice or I'm new or I'm still learning. I can't believe that you felt that way too. And so there's almost like a look of surprise um, on their faces, not, not all of them, um, you know, but, but many of them kind of seem surprised. And so you know, it's not every single case, but I really, you know, I really kind of play off of, um, or try to be in tune, uh, to times that I, it looks like the students are kind of like maybe having a light bulb moment or having a, a moment of feeling vulnerable or uncomfortable or unsure. Um, and then diving in at, at, at that point, because I think it's a really important point of growth, not only to understand, Understand, you know, the medicine side of medicine, but also, you know, the, the, the feel, feeling and human side of medicine too. And that applies to the patients, but also um, us as practitioners. Yeah. And, and that's, that is so well said. That's so well said. And I think that applies not only when it's a light bulb moment, but when it's like an internal nuclear meltdown moment too, like you know, whatever side of the spectrum you're on for that. Um, yes. And yeah, and I, I mean, <laughs> I think that it's easy to see the people ahead of you as, you know, these really uh, very, like there must be some different genetics that they have, or there must be some different thing that they have. But I don't, I don't know anybody either from personal knowledge or from anybody I've talked to on this podcast that actually was just born like that. It was just born with the ability to apply knowledge under pressure and just float through everything. Everybody has this, these stories of like, you know, either being more explicitly or implicitly taught and running these experiments with themselves and sort of finding their way through it about what, what makes sense with it. And I think that there's some real beauty to that idea and to saying that out loud and to modeling that, mm -hmm. right. Which is sort of what you're saying, which, you know, this idea that like, we can use these cases as moments to not only reflect on the process, but also on the internal um, uh, 
what's my word, landscape, the internal landscape that's happening as I'm doing that thing. And you can't always do it in the moment, right? Like you can't always in the moment be like, I feel uncertain. We will do this, right? It's maybe not what you want to necessarily express. You want to be careful about how you show that. Um, as we talked about in the first half of the episode, like the, whatever you emote, whatever you put to the surface is contagious to your team. And you need to be yes. careful and practice that. But there's that fine balance in there about about decompressing and being honest about what you're feeling and what you went through. Um, I do this a lot when I have students or, uh, you know, um, paramedic students or Naval corpsmen or any of the folks that I'm, I'm lucky enough mm -hmm. to work with come up and do CPR uh, for the first time. I mm -hmm. will, you know, make sure I take them aside afterwards and be like, Hey, you just felt somebody's rib break for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's going to stick with you and you're not going to forget this person. And mm -hmm. you're probably going to have nightmares tonight and that's okay. That doesn't mean anything. And mm -hmm. like one day you're going to be in my shoes telling the next person who just did CPR that this is going to be okay. Like mm -hmm. welcome to this long line of humans that have done CPR. And I think that there's some importance in that ritual in like acknowledging the the depth of the fire that you go through and being like, yeah, now you're, now you're here. And a minute ago you were there. But now you've mm -hmm. you've crossed this into the uh, what what my you know friends at the Mission Critical Institute would call the like you've crossed into the liminal space of this other thing, mm -hmm. and now you are this other type of human. And I, there's such depth in that, and I I am so fascinated by this idea of how to do that better um, because I think that I got some good stuff when I was coming up, and some not so good stuff when I was coming up, and I think we can do better. I, I absolutely uh, agree with you. And I, you know, this, this really sticking with me, you know, this um, story that you say about, you know, you're telling these medics that are working with you about, you know, you, that those were ribs that you, you broke, um, maybe help save this person's life. You know, they have a few broken ribs. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember having had work with me. I I'm really, I have an interest in, especially like women's health emergencies. And um, I think that it always surprises the learners that are working with me that, you know, when I tell somebody that they're having like a miscarriage um, in the emergency department, because that's something that we, we do very, very frequently, you know, I, I, I very often cry with the, um, with the, with the patient too. And, you know, students ask me about that. Um, you know, they've, they've asked me about that, like, you know, are you okay, et cetera. And, and I'm like, you know, you really, it's, it's important to kind of like reciprocate the, emotion or kind of like feel, feel the, feel the scene out and maybe reciprocate the emotion that your patient's feeling because, you know, you're a human, they're a human. Maybe they can find a little bit of comfort in that too. And I think that it's something that, you know, surprises students sometimes that, you know, we're not just robots, you know, doing medicine out here. We're humans out here, you know, trying to, you know, help figure out and help make better you know, perhaps like the worst day in somebody's life when they're visiting us at our place of work in the emergency department. And, you know, if your patient is shedding a few tears and you feel comfortable or you have the emotion to kind of like reciprocate that, you're know, like, that's okay. And, and it's almost often, always often welcomed by, by that patient too. But mm. um, yeah, I don't know. That was kind of a tangent, but it, it, no, no. it was, I, I think, that really does get to the question of how do you create spaces where people can become better performers? And part of that is being human yourself and creating the space for humans. And our, um, 
our mutual friend, Emily Brumfield, uh, mm. said that really eloquently when she talked about um, trying to bring her human self to work as opposed to just her robot self to work, mm-hmm. uh, which I think there's a lot of, a lot of depth in. Um, pivoting slightly from that, what's unique about doing this when you have uh, really different interprofessional teams that you're training? Right, because you're training when you're training PA students, you're training them for a certain set of roles on a resuscitation team. Um, when I'm training emergency medicine residents, I'm training them for a different set of roles. When I'm training a, um, you know, a cross rotating early anesthesia resident, it's a different sort of knowledge. And there's all these different roles that we embody, and and to create a group that excels at their roles and then is flexible and skillful to pivot as, as those roles and needs change is, is an interesting challenge. So what's that like for you? How, how do you conceive of that? Yeah, I, I think that um, a, a lot of this has to, you know, go back to this idea of effective teams, like respecting everybody that, that is on the team and validating everybody's experiences that they've had coming into there. Um, and then having some level of trust of people that are on their teams. But also being aware of what one's role is when it comes to working towards kind of like the shared goal or shared challenge um, of, of that, that interprofessional team. And so, um, you know, realizing that what one person does, what one person's role might look very different than somebody else's on that team. And somebody may have, you know, different backgrounds or different lived life experiences um, that make them react in, in a different way. And that's okay. And, and, you know, accepting that, not, you know, creating argument over that or, you know, tension over that and just accepting that and realizing that you're all going to be working towards this shared goal. I think in order to get to that point, there has to be some understanding of um, the, the other professions or the, you know, the other backgrounds that are in that, um, that are in that team as well. And, you know, I, this is something, this is a trend that I'm seeing in medical education in general that I'm, I'm really proud, proud of, and I'm proud to be a, a part of, and this is kind of that intentional inter, um, excuse me, interprofessional education or IPE. And so very intentionally creating curricula in which we get students or learners from various backgrounds um, or people that are, you know, studying to be different healthcare professionals, um, get them together and do a lot of kind of like application phase um, learning and assessment together. And in order for these kind of this inner, inner, um, excuse me, I keep on misspeaking this IPE uh, to, to work, you have to have some you know, understanding some pretty in-depth understanding of what your role on the team is, but then also have some cursory understanding of who the other players on that team are and the things that they can bring to the team, what knowledge, what skills, you know, can they, can they bring to the team and then trusting that they will do that and respecting um, the knowledge and skills that they are, they're bringing to that team as well. And, and, And so it's really kind of knowing what your role is and then juggling that with kind of your cursory knowledge of what other people can do too. Um, I, I this is something I know that when I was in PA school, uh, now um, oh my gosh, like I started fifteen years ago uh, in PA school, a long time ago. Um, I don't think that I had other than you know doing some like extracurricular things with some of the medical students. I don't think that I did 
any like IPE stuff. Did you have anything no, like that? No, I mean, not no. very, you know, we would be mixed in sometimes, especially in the preclinical years with some of the uh, graduate medical education students who were training to be researchers or, you know, studying the basic sort of science stuff. And, you know, we occasionally have a drink with the dental students, but that, that's about the extent of like of what it was. There really wasn't this sense of, of this interpersonal interprofessional training Now, in residency. You know, there are, there were certainly times like I, I remember quite particularly during our uh, ATLS training was a, a really shiny yeah. example of that, where we brought together, um, you know, uh, medical and nursing staff to train and mm-hmm. sim together, which I think was a really wonderful, really wonderful idea, but not enough. And I think we can go a lot farther in that direction. Yeah, I I'm very happy that this is a you know kind of a direction that we're we're seeing a trend that we're seeing in in medical education because I think it's kind of been a disservice in decades past where we teach people in silos and then expect them to go and, you know, work together and just like do it naturally. I think that you're not able to perform at a high level unless you are explicitly trained how to perform at that high level and have opportunity for practice. And so, um, yeah, IPE is where it's at, I think. Yeah. And there's, there's so many, um, you know, as we talk about, as we sort of bridge from individual to team, there's so many like emergent properties of a team that's mixed like that, that you need to develop the skill set to train for. Right. So, um, you know, you need to understand how to, uh, how to galvanize a team with mixed language to take a hard pivot Mm -hmm. as the case changes. You need to understand how to mix from, you know, like low speed to high speed gears as something decompensates and you need to rearrange your, your thought processes. Um, you need to learn how to have a team that's led from, I guess you'd call it leading from below, right? Where it's not the, like the person at the top of the hierarchy, who's leading the charge for a particular moment, or as people switch back and forth. And those are such important skills that, um, that I'm still learning how to do that. I don't always know how to do well, especially Mm -hmm. if I'm dropped into a scenario where I don't know the people as well, right? You and I have worked enough together that I feel like if you put us in a room together, we'd find our way through it. But the first time we worked together, like I hope we would, but it's a lot (laughs) less certain of a thing. And and I think that 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 comes in part from not necessarily knowing the right ways pieces fit together. Um, what, What do you think about that? What do you think about those emergent properties and how we could be training them better? I mean, I, I do think that, um, I, I kind of mentioned this already. I think that in order for people to perform well in emergency settings, they need to have those skills and practice them in low stakes or routine type settings too. And so this is, um, this is a, a topic that I like to talk about a lot. My, my students will say, I'm like a brokered record on this, but this like idea of retrieval practice, like where, you know, I feel like in medicine in general, we're really good at like stuffing a bunch of information into people's heads, you know, you know, please, you know, memorize all this stuff so you can regurgitate it on a multiple choice examination, um, et cetera. And so we're, we're really good at, you know, putting information in people's heads, but we're not always the best at, um, teaching students or teaching learners, or, I mean, you and I are both lifelong learners here too. So teaching medical uh, clinicians um, to take all that information that we've stuffed into their brains and then access that in a very efficient manner. And so this is where this idea of retrieval practice comes in, where you 
teach somebody something and then you assess them um, or you have them practice it. And this can be done at like a low stakes, like talking through a case or talking through like the way that you would, you know, approach a difficult situation or something like that. Or like I do a lot of simulation and like standardized patients with my with my students where we kind of throw them into these impossible cases and, and you know, kind of work through, you know, making difficult decisions. And, and if you do that enough times in kind of these no stakes, low stakes types of situations, situations. And then you kind of add in this idea of spaced repetition, um, where you like learn something, you're assessed on it, or you practice it, you go a period of time without, um, you know, practicing it, but then later on, you come back and practice it. All of these things are going to help kind of uh, deepen somebody's uh, competence and, and deepen somebody's knowledge, so that when they need to apply this in the real world, um, or like we're talking about in an emergent situation, they're able to do that efficiently. And they're not kind of scrambling inside of their brain to, to say, oh boy, I know I remember learning this. I remember the room that I was in, in my, you know, PA school lecture hall. I know what the slide looks like, but I have not practiced accessing this. I think that the more times that we allow our learners and our you know, our colleagues, ourselves, our peers, you know, to practice these difficult things using retrieval practice, using spaced repetition, um, the more natural it's going to be when it counts in, in these emergent situations. So mashing that up with this idea of emergent properties of mixed professional teams, mm -hmm. we sort of arrive at this idea of we should practice interprofessional communication, pivoting, and mm -hmm. things like switching leadership from, from top leadership to below leadership to whatever else the right terminology is for that. We should practice that in low stakes environments like SIM. We should practice mm -hmm. that in like, you know, uh, for instance, if you have a trauma that comes in that doesn't quite meet like trauma team activation criteria. And so we're practicing our skills on that sort of lower, lower intensity mm -hmm. trauma sort of person. Like those are all moments where we can really be working on that recall and ironing out those ideas, but doing it consciously and doing it purposefully with this idea of, okay, we're doing this to practice what we'll need tomorrow when the person comes in on fire. Yes, absolutely. Super um, cool. you know, it, yeah. And I, yeah, I think like practicing these things on, um, you know, applying your systems, you know, like, I love that example that you give about it, like applying like the, the true trauma system, um, your response, like, when, when it's somebody that, you know, like you said, might maybe doesn't meet full trauma criteria, but that, that does give you the opportunity to make sure that your team members and all, all the professionals on your team um, are ready when it is go time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, in a similar way, I, I think like when you, when you think about that retrieval problem and that recall problem, one of the things that I always train my residents to do is when they're leading a resuscitation of a critical patient is to say out loud what their hypothesis of the situation is. You know, you have a person that comes in and they have COPD and they have CHF and maybe they also have a PE and they're short of breath. Geez, that could be anything. And like what you think it is really makes a huge difference into how we act and what our team priorities are. So, um, you know, I, I think about it in terms of making that shared, making sure everybody has the same shared mental model of what's happening in the room. And so I really want them to say out loud, hey, folks, my hypothesis here is heart failure. Let's run a heart failure algorithm. Oh, okay, great. Then everybody in the room, regardless of their professional education, their uh -huh. skill set, and everything, can be like, okay, this is what I know about heart failure. This is my model of heart failure. And to me, that accomplishes two things. One of which is it helps the team be agile and pivot because you're all sort of starting in the same direction. And two, 
it allows us to look for discontinuities and things that don't make sense. If we're training together and you're telling me, Dan, this person has to go back to our example from last time, this person has an opioid overdose and they are getting Narcan, but they keep falling back asleep. Mm -hmm. It's that thing. It's that thing that doesn't fit the pattern that them keep falling back asleep. That if I say, well, what do I know about my mental model of Narcan? Oh, there's a discontinuity Mm -hmm. here. And that should trigger me to say, hey, Janelle, may- maybe there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. But if we don't make that explicit and shared, then we can't access each other's sort of knowledge bases around those around those problems. I love this idea of, you know, kind of stating this hypothesis. When, when I teach um, kind of clinical reasoning and, and go through these drills, I kind of call them with my students, um, I really use this idea of hypothesis-driven uh, data gathering. And so, you know, having a hypothesis and kind of like running a mini like scientific methods um, when you're yeah, asking absolutely. questions or getting physical exam or, you know, trying interventions. But I also love, you know, say, stating it out loud because that adds, you know, some transparency and accountability for everybody on that team. And I think that it probably, you know, makes everybody on that team feel more part of that team. Um, it's like they, they can contribute in some, some way, shape or form. I love that. I'm going to probably adopt that. Yes, do it. Do it, do it. Um, and I think that there's a lot in here that we need to continue riffing on and building around, around some of this IPE and this IP and the ER and, and simming that and best practices around that and, and trying to figure that out. And the links between that and what we talked about the first time about your internal practice and my internal practice, mm-hmm. I think are, oh man, that's such a, all right, well, this podcast isn't going to go out of business anytime soon because there's a lot to explore <laughs> around this. Very true. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I want to be mindful of our time here and, and probably bring us to the end of this section of it. Um, what, uh, as we think about this last piece where we've sort of reflected and riffed on the idea of building better teams and systems that enable us to create um, opportunities for individuals to perform at high levels, regardless of their training and where they're coming from. I think we just barely scratched the surface mm-hmm. of this idea of of IPE and, and training multidisciplinary teams, um, which like open invitation to come back and do around around three about that anytime. Um, but uh, do you have a challenge for us as we're fading out of, out of this episode here? I, I do have a challenge um, for people and it comes with a little bit of, of a story. Um, so it was, I mean, I feel like I'm a historian right now. It was the spring of 2020. I feel like there's going to be so many things that start off with, it was the spring of 2020, but um, this is something that I actually it's a dark and myself. stormy night. <laughs> I know, yeah. right? A whole year. Um, you know, it was, it was April of 2020. And, um, you know, this was when COVID was happening and new and, and everything. And I think that we were all you know, especially us working in emergency medicine, like we were using the same mask over and over again. And, you know, there was a lot of stress. And I, I, as an educator, I had to pivot all of my teaching from in-person to, um, you know, to, to zoom teaching. I was working additional shifts in the ER kind of with like a lot of uncertainty. I had a, you know, five month old baby at home. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on and I felt very, very stressed a lot. Um, but I also felt very fortunate because you would look around and we would see people that, you know, were, you know, dying and people that were losing their jobs. And I felt very fortunate to be able to, you know, have, 
you know, to be doing something I love, not just one thing working in emergency medicine, but also teaching people still to be able to have two things um, that, I, that I really, really loved. And I felt very fortunate. And I realized like, I didn't get to this point of, you know, being this fortunate by myself, I had a huge team of people kind of every step of my career along the way that's kind of pushed me and, you know, helped me grow into who I am. And at that point, you know, I said, from my position of, you know, relative good fortune here, even though it's kind of a shitty situation around us, um, I think that's up to me. I, I would like to pay things forward to other people. Um, and so I made this challenge that for the next year, um, once a month, I would do an intentional pay it forward um, type of uh, endeavor for people in the professional in their professional life or professional world. And so basically I challenged myself once a month, I would nominate somebody for an award or I would encourage a, a student to apply for a scholarship or something like that. And I saw it through. Um, I did it once a month, um, you know, for 12 months. And it was, it was really fulfilling for me. Um, it was also fulfilling, of, of course, I think that I had pretty good luck. I think four people ended up, four of the 12 that I did um, ended up um, you know, winning or, you know, being awarded these, these things. And so I think that's oh, like so pretty cool. good. That's like pretty good, um, you know, stats, but I think more than, you know, more than people winning things, I think that people were sometimes, you know, flattered or maybe taken aback, or it was just kind of like the nudge that they needed, especially during this very difficult year to say like, okay, there is somebody out there that believes in me. Um, and I think that that made it all worth it too. So I'm a competitive person, you know, I, with myself, um, you know, I challenged myself to do this and, you know, I was able to make it through for a year. So the challenge that I want to give your listeners right now is to pay it forward. You don't have to do it for an entire year, but pick somebody that is doing amazing things or has been doing great things that maybe hasn't had the recognition that you feel that they should have had. And nominate them for an award, nominate them for a scholarship, um, you know, you know, send them in for like employee of the month, what have you, but pay it forward to somebody. You just have to do it once. You don't have to do it for a full year. Like I did. That is such a cool idea. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, that's a great challenge. Um, yeah. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Janelle, thank you for, thank you for coming on the show. I already can't wait for round three and it's just, it's an honor to have you. I really appreciate you having these conversations with me and inviting me on. Um, you have a great podcast. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.